Welcome to Designer's Drink, the podcast where I sit down with a fellow designer over drinks and discuss inspiration, the creative process, and our definitions of success. I'm your host, Sam Fagan, owner of Design It Please, and here with me today, all the way from the home of the cheesesteak, is Chris Cashdollar. Welcome to Designer's Drink, Chris. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, I love that on your website, you have the answer to what is probably the number one question you get asked. Is Cash Dollar your real name? (laughs) Yes, yes, people, it is. This is no Tim Ferriss plot to inspire you to break out of your small thinking and go make millions. (laughs) It's true. It's all true. And... Let me tell you, if if I had a nickel every time I've been asked that question, I was thinking <laughs> I might have five dollars. But it's <laughs> it's it's important to just kind of get it out there as preemptive knowledge because it it comes up inevitably in, in every conversation with anybody new I meet. Mm-hmm. I was I was going to ask you just for full transparency, <laughs> but I don't have to because you already preempted that question. All right, thank goodness we can move on to to more crucial conversations now. <laughs> yes. Um, so what are we drinking today, Chris? Okay. So our drink du jour is a vodka martini, slightly dirty. Um, it is a drink that I like for its kind of uh, cleanliness, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it is can be very refreshing um, and still be very sophisticated, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I, I like about it too is just kind of the the method of making it. Yeah, uh, I want to know more about this. So, I you know if you've ever gone out anywhere and you've ordered a martini, um, you've probably watched the uh, the the person, the bartender, very demonstratively make a martini, and it usually involves like a shaking mm-hmm. action. And uh, what I found is there is no better way to ruin a martini than to do that um, shake thing. Um, stir. Yes, yes. And uh, what you do is you want that vodka or gin, whatever you're using, in this case vodka, you want that vodka to be as like velvety and ice cold as possible. So when you do that kind of violent shaking uh, with the ice, what you do is you create friction and tiny little ice particles Mm-hmm. that you know break up uh in the course of that that shaking and what happens is that ends up in your drink mm-hmm. and it waters down your martini and it creates and you'll see it you'll see kind of like a little hazy layer of ice crystals on the mm-hmm. top of your martini it might look pretty but that first sip of that martini is going to be actually really bad it's going to taste like water and uh so the the goal is to get that to get that vodka chilled as cold as possible, get it mixed as cold as possible, but with as little violence as needed. Do you put your vodka in the freezer? Yes, vodka is in the freezer. Uh, the glass, the, the stemware mm-hmm. in this case, mm-hmm. um, gets pre-chilled as well. So I'll set the, the stemware aside and uh, fill it with a ice bath. And then from there, it's just you know getting the ratio right. So I think I usually do about a, well, t- today I made a double. Um, <laughs> But it's you know two one one shot of uh, vodka um, and a, just a splash of vermouth and a splash of olive juice. I didn't put any uh, I didn't put an olive in mine today. Um, I already had lunch, so. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I'm glad that I practiced last night. I had never made a martini by myself before. <laughs> and I have to say, it was a little bit of a disaster. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure if it was because my olives were too old or what. But I didn't, I didn't shake. I stirred. Good. good. Very good. Day two is better. Absolutely. So Do now you, you use green olive or black olives? I use green olives. Uh, they're usually the big fat queen size ones. And and to be honest, I, I only buy one vodka and it's Tito's, mm. which oh, you okay. should, should be familiar with. Yeah. Austin, Austin based company. Hey, hey. I was going to ask you what kind of vodka you used. I did nothing, not go for Tito's. Fancy. It's, it's great vodka, though. I went for another Texas based vodka this time. Excellent. That I don't remember the name to right now. I'll look it up later. <laughs> Something in Texas. <laughs> so I was watching um, in my research on you, like a creepy podcast stalker that I am. Um, I was watching your How Design Talk from 2014. Oh, boy. <laughs> my pressing question is, do you like responsive web design yet? <laughs> I do. It was a problem that's really fun to solve. Obviously, I think mm -hmm. as designers, it's it, you know we we tend to want to have the best possible experience and be able to control best we can mm -hmm. on you know the things we create. So in theory, in responsible web design, where you have a chance to actually make sure something looks good um, on all these myriad of devices and, and screen sizes, that's a you know, it's a great problem to be able to solve as right. a modern designer. But then with that comes the exponential kind of multiplication of work. Right. So I think there's still a lot of a lot of room for education and discussion about just how we as designers manage this process and, and make sure that it's efficient and cost effective for our clients and mm -hmm. and that we do a really good job communicating mm -hmm. uh, expectations and limitations and what we want to see and what we can't control uh, with everyone involved. Yeah. So one of the parts of the process that's really overwhelming for me and hard to figure out is just how many, how many screens do I need to make? <laughs> right. <laughs> All of them for every size possible for every page possible, or just like five. And <laughs> Does the client care? And each client is different about what they want to like see beforehand. Absolutely. Each client and wants a different level of control. So that control is kind of a, you know, it's very nebulous early on. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you have X amount of effort you got to put forth. So many screens you're going to have to focus on, but it's about, you know, making the right decisions with your client about where you focus that effort. And, you know, a lot of people are solo designers out there, maybe on their own, but, um, or some people are working in teams, some people are working in house, whatever. But I think the, the, the key is, is communicating proactively about, okay, here is what I have in a kind of initial, you know, uh, audit determined what mm -hmm. I think is the, the key parts of the experience we're going to focus on. So it might be, you know, here are the five core page types. Mm -hmm. Based on where we're at with the content, looking at the experience, here's what I'm diagnosing right now is, you know, the the core backbone of the experience, perhaps, right. or the key templates maybe to focus on, mm -hmm. um, and that 
it's never it's never definitive because it's always ends up being a starting point. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, yeah, Chris, nice job. Those are five key pages, but you forgot about this and this and this. Like, oh yeah, okay, there's obviously more here to do, but uh, you have to be comfortable getting a V1 out, a draft out mm-hmm. to start the conversation. Do you have any advice for the first year freelancer? There's a local Philadelphia Slack channel that I belong to. It's design focused and we have a bunch of um, kind of, I don't know, what's the term, sub-channels, regular mm-hmm. channels? I don't know. I don't know the proper Slack vernacular. But there's a freelancer's channel on there. And uh, there was somebody locally who was uh, asked pretty much that same question. I'm like, what do you, if you're going to do this, if I'm going to make this leap, what do I need? And the funny thing is that you really don't need anything. I, in reality, you don't. You don't need anything. You need it. Some, uh, somebody's going to pay you some money, some, do some work, and hopefully a, a computer to do it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't really need anything. That said, there are things you should have. Mm-hmm. There are things you should have in place um, before you make this make this jump. For example, um, I think it's important to kind of get your finances separated early on. So before I went full-time freelance, two or three years prior to that, I kind of set up myself as a side business already mm. so that if I ever did decide to go full-time freelance, the financial aspect and the business aspect of it was already in place. Mm-hmm. It's second important thing to do, get an accountant. <laughs> True. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the third, maybe not the third, but it's definitely an important thing is uh, a safety net. Mm-hmm. And that sounds uh, really uh, optimistic and maybe a little bit too obvious, but I don't think you go into a full-time freelance um, situation without a few months of backup cash somewhere you have access to. I went into this uh, with zero. I had no money backing me up. And when I talked to my accountant about this, he said, you have to get a line of credit instantly, mm. get a business line of credit so that despite the fact you know, you're bringing in money now, despite the fact that you know, it looks like you're you know, going to have consistent uh, checks coming in, mm-hmm. it's not always going to be that way. And guess what? This year I've had a credibly roller coaster year mm-hmm. um, with uh, invoices being paid on time. Mm-hmm. And if oh. I didn't have that line of credit, oh my God, I would have been sunk like yeah. three or four months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a lie and I could switch to Harvest. I, I use Harvest for Harvest Plug. Harvest, this is a great, great. <laughs> get them as a sponsor. They're great. Um, I love Harvest. I love tracking my time. And uh, basically, I have one, two, three, nine open invoices right now. Nine invoices, uh, and eight of them are overdue. And and I have I have two of them. They're overdue by forty plus days. Oh, yeah. We have a. I don't know how to fix that problem. We have that problem. It's it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. I've started to uh, change my contracts. Um, but it's it's a struggle. Yeah, you know, even I, with like contracts and saying thirty day terms, uh, people ignore them or don't read them or whatever, and you can't. What do you do? So it, it's 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 you know a disheartening situation because you obviously you don't want this to happen as a freelancer mm-hmm. or anybody, and you don't want to have to deal with late paying clients because mm-hmm. it's like an additional level of stress once it gets to a certain point. So. 
you know, I'm at the point now with this one client that, you know, they've told me that, sorry, we're waiting for late payment from one of our clients. Mm. We can't pay you. Despite mm-hmm. the fact that I have a clause in my contract that says if payments are late, I can charge you a licensing fee. Right. So now I'm like, oh, geez, now I actually have to do something about right. that. You have to make the decision. Am I yeah. going to follow through on this? Yes, exactly. So now it becomes you know, another level of stress, another task I have to think about when it comes mm-hmm. to just getting paid. All yeah. I want to do is get paid. Let's make this easier for everybody. Right. Just pay your bill. Mm-hmm. What I want to send back to them is I want to say, hey, guess what? When I have tough times, I got a business line of credit. Maybe you should do the same thing. And mm-hmm. we're talking about you know a large company with you know 20 or 30 employees. Yeah. Because so. they should, you think they should have the money to pay the people that they've hired. <laughs> think. One would think. Yeah, one of the things that drove me crazy in my first year, and it only happened twice, but I would do work for somebody else. I would contract for another agency, and they I would send them an invoice, and they would say, okay, we have to wait to get paid for this in order to pay you. And that's fine if they're paid quickly, but mm-hmm. I determined for myself in my own business that... I would not treat other people who contract with me like that. Like if I hire them, I'm going to pay them for their work and I'm going to pay them like right away. I hired them. The client didn't hire them. I did. Right. The client hired me. So it's my responsibility to pay them in a timely manner. That's one of my philosophies for running my own shop. I I think it's a good philosophy. I think that's a... That's a uh, value you hold, mm-hmm. which I, I, I applaud. And I, you know, when I get to the point where I start subcontracting out, I'm probably going to do the same thing. But it's it's surprising that um, it's not that. I guess it's not also not that surprising, but it is. It's quite a bummer to realize that so many people out there who are in the business of augmenting their staff with freelancers and. You know, contract people don't value that, mm-hmm. despite the fact you know they're better off financially by hiring contract people mm-hmm. to do the work. Yeah, they're getting you know this kind of you know financial benefit of not hiring you full time, but also at the same time they're they're holding on to those funds and can you know who knows what they're doing? They're accruing interest on the money they owe you, yeah. making money on the money they owe you. Yeah, that's true. Ugh. Um, enough about that. (laughs) Such a bummer. Too too down for a Sunday (laughs) afternoon. One of the questions that I like to ask freelancers is, what does your daily routine look like? It's a a good question. And uh, I will say that I have a routine, but my routine can be kind of chaotic. So I have a nine-year-old daughter, and uh, she's with me you know, part of the time. So one of the benefits of being um, a full-time freelancer who works mostly from home is gives me the flexibility to kind of be with her when I need to, help her out whenever I can. So for example, you know, she has piano lessons at 4.30 on Thursdays. Guess who takes her? Mm-hmm. Dad does because dad's a freelancer, and I can sit there and work. Um, in the lobby while she's, you know, getting her piano lesson. Uh, okay. But that said, you know, I, I, I tend to like routines and I still get up, you know, quarter after six in the morning and I go through the, the motions of making the bed and making coffee and 
seeing my lady off to work and, and then take my daughter to summer camp. And, and then I kind of have this moment of like, all right, time to get to work. And I trance upstairs to my little office and I just go at it. And I think it's important to still start the day with a normal get up and go to work routine. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I think I almost went nuts this winter. <laughs> So I would recommend most people you have um, an additional space. So mm-hmm. I think there's, there might be some sort of actual logic behind this, but I've heard this, this thing that humans need three spaces. I think a, you need a third space to go to. You have usually like a home, obviously, mm-hmm. a place where you reside. You have tends to have like a workspace you go to, and mm-hmm. then you usually need like a third space to kind of create some sort of balance in your yeah. life. Interesting. So that that third space, I think, um, I've been thinking a lot about that and trying to figure out what that third space is for me. Mm. And I do think it needs to be someplace you can go to to kind of change your routine up a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, break up your day, perhaps. Um, it could be a client's office. It could be a co-working location. It could be your coffee shop around the corner. But right. I think it's important to have a, another place you can go to. Otherwise, you know, you can be a little stir crazy mm-hmm. if you only work from home. Right. Yeah, that's why I had to join a co-working space straight away. I know you've worked with Zappos. And Zappos first came on my radar at my first job in Austin. We were a tiny startup and trying to figure out how to build the culture that we wanted or that we thought we wanted. And Zappos was one of our role models because they wanted everything that they did centered around their core values. Um, so I pulled them up to refresh my memory because I think they're awesome. And number one, deliver wow through service. Number two, embrace and drive change. Number three, create fun and a little weirdness, which they actually had misspelled. And I'm not sure if that was on purpose or not. Interesting. They had two eyes and little. Um, number four, be adventurous, creative, and open-minded. I love that. Number five, pursue growth and learning. Six, build open and honest relationships with communication, which I think is something both you and I try to strive for. Mm -hmm. Um, Seven, build a positive team and family spirit. Eight, do more with less. Nine, be passionate and determined. Ten, be humble. And so I was thinking about, do I have core values for my company which I don't have anything written down yet, but have you thought through this for yourself? It's a, it's a tough, it's a a tough inner conversation to have with yourself. Um, but it's something I've started to, to think about. There's a good book out there. I've started reading. It's called agency by, I want to say author's name is Rick Webb and Rick Webb, uh, was one of the founders of the barbarian group, Mm -hmm. which, um, has been a very successful digital agency. Um, they're I'm not sure where they're based out of New York or California, but anyways, they almost like right out of the gate, the first chapter of the book is pretty much why. Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. If you want to start an agency, why do you care? What and with that comes, you know, what are your values? I've been thinking about that and it's hard. It's really, really hard. And it's not something that I think you can be casual about. Mm-hmm. I think you have to kind of almost lock yourself in a room with a whiteboard and, and, and kind of go through 
you know, like a, almost like a inner, uh, like a wrestling. Yeah. And a wrestling, I think you need to, it's almost like you need to go back in time too. You need to go back in time and think about every job you had, why you liked it and why you didn't and why you left. Mm. Because in, in some cases, I think in, re, in, in remembering why you rejected something, you end up clarifying what you actually like mm-hmm. and what you actually believe in. I've been trying to loop my clients into the process more frequently and in smaller micro deliverables. And they're coming back to me with things about um, colors and fonts, not really fonts, but colors. Can we make this brighter? I don't feel like this is standing out as much. Um, Like they're focusing on the micro (laughs) portions of the comp. At what point does it become necessary to tell a client you're not focusing on the right thing? Or do you just change whatever small thing they want? Oh, it's the tough question. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a battle, you know, we're never not going to fight. Um, so the, the best way to get ahead of battles like that is to be preventative. And you can't prevent it from happening entirely, but what you can do is you can put kind of uh, almost like bumpers in place for situations where that type of feedback occurs. I always provide almost like a, a little checklist primer to the client saying, okay, this is deliverable and this is what I want you to look at. Mm. These are the things I want you to focus on. And oh yeah, by the way, let's remind you again what we've already agreed to. This is the thing that we've done to got us to this point. This is we've already agreed that this was the style board we wanted to use. Mm-hmm. Here's your full comprehensive on that style. So you help them just kind of piece together that puzzle a little bit more before they sit down and start to absorb what you're giving them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, we're all distracted people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we have so many things going on in our lives and so many things going on in our jobs. I, it's, I think it's almost disrespectful to deliver something to a client and just expect them to remember everything that's preceded to mm-hmm. this point. It could be months, it could be days, um, but help them out. Give them a little bit of kind of like a, hey, last week on Lost, this happened. <laughs> you know? yeah. Give them that little bit of like a, a setup so that when they jump into this new thing, they're kind of reminded about what got them there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. The Another thing that I liked from your how talk, your how design talk, is the um, the worksheet or the questionnaire that you give clients about, hey, here are 12 websites in your kind of field. Uh, do you feel like this speaks to what you want to speak to or, or doesn't speak at all to what you want to speak to? Um, I thought that was brilliant. And I assume you've had a really good experience with that. It's not the perfect tool for every every client, every problem. Um, but talking about design is tough. Mm. People do not have vernacular. Like we have vernacular mm-hmm. when it comes to discussing what they see and how it makes them feel. So something like, Hey, let's look at this website for 15 seconds. And you tell me on a scale of one to five, 
whether you like it or you don't like it. And it doesn't need to be much more intense than that. Give me your gut feeling. Is mm-hmm. it a five? Awesome. Is it a one? Horrible. Mm-hmm. And we're just talking about initial gut reaction. And, you know, hey, we, we work digitally. We know that gut reaction is important. Mm-hmm. What's the micro millisecond percentage you process something and, and you either accept it or reject it? Right. Like, it does matter. It's important. Um, and imagine that on a higher education scale when you're trying to lure in potential students, mm-hmm. you know, every year. You want to make sure that, you know, the property you're your digital property you're creating and maintaining appeals in the right way. So did you come up with all of this on your own? I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> <laughs> nothing um, is new. Yeah, it, it, it does have a little, it smacks of nothing is new. Um, I think what I did is I borrowed some of uh, the tools that Frog Design has published mm-hmm. over the years and adjusted them you know, to our needs. Uh, working with Kevin Hoffman again, we really kind of were able to hone um, and create almost like a suite of exercises that we would we would use, and and then um, there's a book out there that I've relied on called Game Storming. It's Game Storming, not Brainstorming. Um, and that book has been fantastic for for helping to kind of break the ice with uh, clients in a kickoff meeting to get them talking about and working together on certain aspects of you know kind of a shared vision. Cool. So. The goal at the end of the day is to start creating a shared language, um, shared vision, a shared language. Um, and when it comes to talking about design, um, you have to kind of be conscious of that because you just can't expect everyone to understand or know what, say, clean design means mm-hmm. or modern or whatever. Throw out any superlative you want. Um, most people don't have that ability to, to communicate clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that... I've been dreaming of building is some sort of app that um, when someone is trying to, when a client wants and needs a logo, they go to this app and they have, they have a, they have four different logos of, from different styles that are each labeled with a specific style word, like clean, vintage, eighties, um, whatever, pick four words. And then they go through and they like, yeah, 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 this, this is what I want my brand to look like. And then they go to the next page. This is, this is what I want my brand to look like. This resonates. This doesn't, um, some sort of something to bridge that gap between our language as designers and the client who obviously hasn't been educated because they've been doing other wonderful things with their time. Yeah. We need, we need something to bridge that, which is why I like your tool a lot. Is that available? anywhere? Good question. Um, <laughs> I, I know Kevin has maintained a uh, kickoffmeetings.com for a while. Okay. I'm not sure how uh, up-to-date it is, but um, the worksheet itself, um, I am willing to publish it for anybody who wants to download it. Um, it's not too complex, um, but I can, I can put it up on my website and we can maybe provide a link um, yeah. afterwards. Uh, that they can be accompanying wherever this podcast lives. Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. I, for one, would love to see it in more detail. Awesome. Thanks. It's always, uh, yeah, the shared economy, I think, is is valuable. And I agree. Supporting and other designers and developers. Yeah, I don't think I would be where I am. Not that I'm anywhere, but there's definitely a feeling of, you know, I've surrounded myself my entire career with people much smarter than me, Mm. and I've benefited from that. 
That concludes part one of my interview with Chris. There was just too much good stuff to edit it down into one episode. So you're going to have to come back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, make sure to check out the podcast notes at designersdrink.com. I'll have the links up to the worksheet that Chris and I talked about at the end, as well as some other fun things up there. Thank you for listening. I do love making this, but I want you to love it too. So if there's a designer I should have on the show or a question or an issue you really, really want discussed, let me know. Shoot me an email at sam at designitplease.com. The purpose of this show is to make the design world just a little bit smaller, to bring us together so we can know each other and learn from each other and be inspired by each other. If that's a mission you can get behind, share this little podcast with a friend, subscribe to it, rate and review it. Finally, I thought I'd end with a quote from Paula Schur about success. She said, if I get up every day with the optimism that I have the capacity for growth, then that's success for me. Remember this as you go, you have the capacity for growth and you have the capacity for success.